the new ways of Christ are superior to the old ways of religion. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, some years ago, as a teenager, and uh, you know the more the years go by, the more years ago that was, those years ago as a teenager, right? But some years ago, I got my first study Bible, and that was by a man named Charles Ryrie. It was a Ryrie study Bible. How many of you had one of those or know that? Yeah, that was a great study Bible. It is a great study Bible. But uh, I remember one of the things that he said from based on that, I got a book of his a few years later after that that I read in which he said something that really stuck with me uh, because it also then, it, it, it struck a note though with something that I'd heard from someone else as well. And that is, he, he said, he wrote a book called Balancing the Christian Life. And one of the things that he said in that, he said, is that the Christian life, the Christian life is the exciting adventure of maintaining your balance. That is, you know, not going off on wild extremes one way or the other, but maintaining that healthy biblical balance. We said that, you know, that that fit right in with something that someone else had been saying to me and to many others for a long, long time. I've told you about this person before. I've told you, you know, how there are just people that God has put in our lives that we can be so thankful for, that God put that person in our life for the influence that they were. And one of those people for me was a woman named Jill. Uh, she was the mother of a good friend of mine. And she and her husband, Keith, they hosted a Bible study in their home for us kids when we were in high school. And uh, one of the things that she was well known for in saying, we would kind of kid her about it a little bit, but there was so much truth to it, is she was always talking about the importance of balance. So you may remember her, I call her sometimes the balance lady, where she would always say, we'd be talking about something, and she would always say, now kids, where's the balance? You got to have the balance. Again, that idea of maintaining that healthy biblical balance and not distorting something or going to one extreme or another, but maintaining that healthy biblical balance of all that God has said on something, not part of it here, part of it there, but that healthy balance of that. And so with our message here today, it concerns a topic which is something that is very, very important that we keep that careful biblical balance. And that is the theme here of law and grace, law and grace. Is the law good? Yes, it is. Is grace good? Well, by definition, it absolutely is, right? But sometimes people have this idea, like law and grace, like these are two fundamentally competing notions, that one is good and the other is bad. Grace is good, the law, well, the law is bad. Well, it depends on what sense do you mean that? What do you mean when we speak of the law? And what is that healthy biblical balance here of our understanding of law and grace. When we say law, we're referring to God's law, that is what God said is right and good. So the law reflects, it's the moral will of God. It reflects that which is good, that which is right. 
Grace, then, is God's forgiveness and God's goodness that he extends to moral lawbreakers like me and you, like all of us, right? It's God's goodness to people who don't deserve it. And we have to maintain law and grace, these notions in our minds, in a healthy biblical balance. We're going to see that come up in our, in our uh, text here today as we continue our series, Unique, The Life, Death, and Resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I've said, uh, I am, uh, for our text, I am following here a great resource. It's called One Perfect Life. It's by John MacArthur. It's a harmony of the Gospels where he takes all of the Gospel accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, and he puts them together into a, a harmony of one flowing story, one chronological flowing story of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so continuing in that for us today here, we are in our last message in the first year of Jesus' earthly ministry here, which the theme here is the new is better. Some people in Jesus' day were saying the old is better, but Jesus is saying that the new is better. And we're going to be harmonizing, drawing from Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, and we put these accounts together. What I want us to see in that today is that the new ways of Christ, the new covenant, the new ways of Christ are superior to the old ways, the old ways of religion. How many of you know the difference between Christ and religion? They're not exactly the same thing, are they, right? The new ways of Christ and the new covenant are superior to the old ways of religion. So before we look at our text here, a little context, following a rejection in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus had gone to the city of Capernaum in Galilee, and he ministered there and throughout that area, Uh, both to Jews and to Gentiles. He was growing in popularity as a preacher and a teacher and a miracle worker, and he was attracting quite a bit, bit of attention then from the religious authorities in Jerusalem and throughout Judea. Last week, we read the account of the healing of the paralytic, that bold move that those friends made when they lowered their friend down to dug a hole in, a, in the roof and lowered him down to Jesus so he could be healed. We saw the controversy there, there, though, when Jesus forgave that man's sins. These Pharisees and scribes, who does he think he is? Only God can forgive sins. And they're right, right? Only God can forgive a person of all of their sins. We can forgive someone for something they may have done to us, but you can or I can't forgive someone of all of their sins, can we? Only God can do that, and yet that is what Jesus did. The Pharisees, the scribes, they were outraged. Blasphemy! And if Jesus was just a man, it would be, wouldn't it? But he wasn't only a man. He was and is God. So he was right to do that. Well, our text then today goes on from there and covers some events then near the end of the first year of Jesus' earthly ministry. So here we're told, Then he went out again by the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and the multitude came to him, and he taught them. 
After these things, he went out, and as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a tax collector named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to Matthew, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. Now it happened, as he sat at the table dining in Levi's house, that, behold, a great number of tax collectors and sinners also came and sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners... They complained against his disciples, saying, Why does your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So first off in our text here, we see an unlikely disciple. An unlikely disciple. He was a tax collector named Levi, who we would also come to know as Matthew. He would eventually become one of the twelve of the disciples of Jesus. Now, what was his job? What was his profession? He was a tax collector. Now, you may have recalled, I think, in a previous message at some point, we talked about tax collectors and what the people thought of tax collectors in those days. And I said, now, every time I say the word tax collector, you ought to say, what? Boo. You remember that? I'm not going to say that again here today. We got, you guys got a little out of hand the last time that we did that there. So I'm not going to ask you to do that here today. But he was a tax collector. I knew it. I knew it. I was waiting for somebody. I was wondering who was going to do it. I was expecting it down in this area right here. And I was absolutely right there with that. So, no, but he was a tax collector. And yes, there it is. Someone always has to do it again, don't they? So, yeah. So, why weren't they popular? Why weren't they the most popular people in the land? Well, first of all, how many of us really enjoy paying taxes, right? Not too many of us enjoy that anyway, so that's one reason. But it wasn't just that reason, though. You see, they were under the domination of Rome, the Roman Empire, and so Rome would collect taxes from the people. And in order to do that, they would, they would kind of farm that out. You would have like a little franchise business, if you will, that they would use some of the people there their fellow Jews would take that job, take that opportunity to collect taxes for Rome. Why? Because they wanted to be outcasts? No, because there was good money to be made in that. You see, because Rome required a certain amount and you would collect that for Rome, but then you were allowed to collect some more for yourself since it was your job. And hey, you've got to pay your bills too, right? You've got to put food on the table too. So they would do that, and you would have the full authority and backing of Rome then to do that. And Rome gave you pretty much leeway to collect as much as you wanted as long as they got their share, what they required. And so what do you think a lot of tax collectors did? 
They extorted the people. They got as much as they could out of the people. So these were not the most popular folks because, first of all, they were ripping people off, taking from them, but also they were seen as traitors, traitors to their own nation by collaborating with the hated Romans. And here is a tax collector named Levi. And along comes Jesus. And Jesus says to him, follow me. And what does he do? He left all. He rose up and followed him. Supplies what? This is speaking, I believe, to Matthew's heart. Do you think he might have been troubled by what he was doing? And so when Jesus said, follow him, he left it all which speaks of what? Of, of repentance. And began to follow Christ. Now you might think, well, why in the world would Jesus call a man like him, a tax collector, to be one of his disciples? But look around the room here. Take a look at yourself and don't start pointing at others, okay? Look at all the people that Jesus has called to follow him. Aren't you glad he called you to follow you? You know, there's an interesting, and we're not going to cover it here today, but these, the 12, they were a very interesting group of men that Jesus called. And I'm sure there were some very interesting conversations among them at times. But we're going to get to that in a later message. So here is an unlikely disciple, a tax collector. But if that's not bad enough, guess what? Here's some more unlikely disciples. If you're a tax collector, who are your friends? Other tax collectors and other sinners. That is what? People who didn't have the best moral reputation, who were outcasts. If you're an outcast, who are your friends? Your fellow outcasts, right? So Matthew then, Levi, Jesus calls him to follow him. Do you think he was excited about this when Jesus called him? Do you think he knew that something wonderful had happened in him and was going to happen? And what do you do when something wonderful happens? You want to tell others and you want to, you want to celebrate it, right? Right? So what did he do? Levi gave him a feast in his home, invited Jesus, come, come, have dinner, and invites all of his friends. And of course, who are your friends? Other tax collectors and sinners, people of questionable moral standing. And so there is Jesus. Now, if you were a rabbi in that day, a teacher, Do you think that you would be caught dead in the home of a tax collector and sinners like that? Oh, no, no, no. You can't mix with them, those people. But there's Jesus. Not only does he go to the home, but what is he doing? He's eating with them. He's feasting with them. The scandal. By the way, these sinners, when Scripture speaks of these sinners, how are you can eat with sinners? Who are sinners? All of us, right? But when they said the word sinners, what did they mean? 
These are people they were looking to get. They thought they were self-righteous. They were self-righteous, and they thought they were better than them. And so these sinners, we're all sinners, right? But these sinners, no, these were ones that they looked down on, thought that they were morally superior to them. And here is Jesus, not only going in their home, but actually celebrating with them outrageous and so we see a complaint a complaint from the self-righteous the self-righteous scribes and the pharisees what they do they strictly kept the law did the pharisees strictly keep the law guess it depends on how you're defining the law right and what do you mean by that if you mean certain outward rituals and routines and that did they keep the law Oh, you better believe it. They were really good at that. But if by keeping the law you mean something inward from the heart and a transformation of the heart, they weren't so good at keeping the law after all, were they? But they were focused on the outward, the external ceremony, ritual, routines, appearances. And they had that down. And so they said, What is your teacher doing eating with those people? Tax collectors and sinners. Eating in their minds with them implied what? Like he was giving approval to that. How dare he? But what does Jesus say? He rebukes these self-righteous folks. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician but the sick. If you are well, you're sick, you don't have any problems, do you go and see a doctor about, hey, doc, I really need to see you. I don't have any pain or any problems whatsoever. Can you check me out? Look me over? You're not going to do that, right? By the way, I'm very thankful for our physicians. We have a great one here in our midst right here today. Thank you for what your service. But well people don't go to a physician. The sick do. Okay, I know, I know, wellness, prevention, even well people should go to the physician, right? I'm not saying that. But he's saying, but what's Jesus' point here? People who think they're well, people who think they're righteous, think they don't need any healing, don't go to the one who needs, who can heal them. But those who are sick, they do. These tax collectors, these sinners, they know they're morally sick. See, salvation can't come to the self-righteous, those who think that they are already whole and do not need healing. But those who do know they're sick, they go to the physician, the moral physician. And then Jesus says something interesting to them. He says, go and learn what this means. That's a beat down, folks. Here are the Pharisees. Do they know what the law says? Do they know what the law means? Are they experts in the law? They fancied themselves that. They thought they were. And in the eyes of many of the people, they thought they were. Boy, if anybody knew the law and what the law means, it's these people. And now here's this rabbi who says to them, go and learn what this means. In other words, what? You're ignorant and you don't know anything about the law. Let me Go and look this up and figure out what it really means. Not what you think. And then he quotes from the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. 
where the Lord speaking there says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, if we're going to stop right there, pop, pop quiz, pop theological and biblical quiz for us here. What do you think, you remember, where, where Jesus says, go and learn what this means? God speaking says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. How would you answer that? What does that mean? Hmm. Maybe we all ought to go and learn what this means here then, right? What is Jesus saying? When God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, does that mean that God, he instituted this, this is under the Old Testament, the Old Covenant era, he has instituted these things. God doesn't want, he had told us to give these sacrifices, but now he's saying, well, I guess he doesn't want us to give sacrifices after all. He wants mercy and not sacrifice. Is that what it means? Don't do the sacrifices, just be merciful. No, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying, does God want the people to offer the sacrifices? Of course he did. He commanded them to do that. But he wants it to come from what? From a heart, a right heart. And he was not, God didn't want their external conformity going. You can go and offer all the sacrifices you want, follow all the rules and the laws you want, but your heart can be far from God, right? And so he was saying, God was saying to the people then, and now Jesus, quoting that to them, is saying, look, God wants your heart, not your external conformity. So he's putting his finger on exactly what the problem is with them. And that's the problem with Pharisees and self-righteous people, right? They think they know, and they think they're doing the right thing, and meanwhile, they don't get it in the heart at all. They're so intent on keeping the letter of the law that they miss the Spirit entirely. Jesus would later say something like this. says, what? You, you're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, right? You think you're following the law to these minute little details of all things, and then you're missing the big point of it all, though, about the heart. So God is interested not just in outward conformity, he wants an inward conformity to the truth, to what's good. Inner righteousness. Jesus says he came to call sinners to repentance, which is all of us, by the way. He didn't come to call the righteous. Well, who is truly righteous? None of us. (laughs) He came to call all of us to repentance. But when Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, he's saying, he didn't come to call the self-righteous. You don't think you need to come to repentance. He's come to call those who recognize their need to repent. Goes on here. The controversy wasn't over, though. It says, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. These are the disciples of John the Baptist. It says, then they came to him saying, why do we, the disciples of John, and likewise those of the Pharisees, fast often and make prayers, but your disciples eat and drink and do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth from a new garment on an old garment. 
or else the new piece makes a tear, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins. New wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, The old is better! So a question about fasting. These were disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was what? The forerunner to Jesus Christ, whose message was what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of that prophecy, the one that John was pointing to. But there were still some who were disciples of John the Baptist yet, and they had not yet come to see Jesus as the realization of the one whom John had been preaching and pointing to. And so they, and also some of the Pharisees, they're fasting. It's been suggested it may be the case that by this point, John the Baptist was in prison. By the way, we've talked about that before in another context. Do you think that if you're being faithful to the call of God on your life, then everything's going to go swimmingly all the time because you're being obedient to the call? Just ask John the Baptist. Even he the one who Jesus said there has been no greater prophet ever among men than John the Baptist, even he was kind of, when he finds himself in prison, is saying, uh, Jesus, you are the Messiah, right? Kind of questioning the plan. What am I doing? I wasn't expecting this. And eventually what happened to John? Got his head cut off. Now, if John could speak to us now from heaven, do you think he would regret his obedience and his faithfulness? Because I went to prison and I got my head go. No, I don't think he would at all. But here now, he's in prison. So now his disciples, they're, they're fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. In fact, in the, in the law of God, you know, God only commanded a fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, there were other times when the people were certainly free to fast. There were various reasons. That's a good study, by the way, biblical fasting, the various kinds of fasts and the reasons for it. But here, but like anything, what do the Pharisees do? They take something good that God has given, and what do they do? They institutionalize it, make it a law, making it about external conformity. And so they fasted twice a week. Two days a week they fasted. And they, were, they wanted to make sure everybody knew about it too, right? In fact, that's going to be coming up soon when we get to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to call them out on that. That it's all, again, about outward appearances and not inward truth. And so they say, well, you know, we fast and the Pharisees, they fast. Well, why don't you? Why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? He gives them an interesting response to that, basically saying, well, they will fast, but only in the proper time. He, said, he says, if, if you're at a, a wedding and the bridegroom then is with there, are the friends of the bridegroom? Let me ask you, when you go to a wedding and you are at the reception afterwards, do you sit around mourning and fasting and refusing to partake of any of the food or the celebrations there? 
No, that's the inappropriate time to do that. Now, there may be another time when you're going to fast or mourn, but not at a wedding celebration. I tell you, if I'm at a wedding celebration and I see someone mourning and fasting and miserable at it, I've got to think, you must not be too happy for the married couple here, right? So, So that's the wrong time. That's the wrong time to mourn. That's the wrong time to fast. So Jesus says, I am with them. He is the bridegroom, right? We are the bride. And he says, they, I am with them now. Now is not the time, but he will be taken from them, and then they will fast. And they did then, right? But this wasn't the time. But, you know, there's something else at stake here. It's not just a matter of timing. It's also a matter of understanding, then, the old and the new. You see, the, the Pharisees and that, they were fasting, again, for outward, external conformity, following the law, following the rituals and the traditions. See, it's, it's one thing to be obedient to what God has said in the law, but it's another thing, though, to start adding on your own stuff on top of that, right? And the Pharisees were famous for that. God didn't tell them fast twice a week. But they just did that, and they added that on to that. And then it became, now, you know what? You, you may fast twice a week, and that's fine if it's coming from your heart, you know, to do that. But for them, what was it? Again, it was just an outward, external conformity. It wasn't an inward transformation. So Jesus gives a couple of examples that may sound a little strange to our ears, one of them in particular, but he says, you know, if you've got, uh, you don't take a, a brand new patch of cloth and, and sew it to an old garment. You don't do that. Why not? Because what happens to, to fabric over time? It shrinks, right? And so you put this on there. What happens is it's going to, as it shrinks, what's it going to do? It's going to tear the garment. So you, so you don't do that. You don't put the new on the old because it's, they're incompatible. The same way then, he says, what? You don't put new wine in old wineskins. Now, they would store wine in, in wine. These were animal skins. They would sew them together, and you would put wine in that. And when you put new wine in it, what happens is, as new wine ages, as it ferments, it, it expands. So you want to put it in fresh, new wineskins, because as it expands, then the wineskin expands with it. But if you put that new wine then in an old wineskin, that, that skin's already stretched. And so what happens then? The wine expands and then what? Boom, it bursts. And it ruins it all then, right? What's Jesus' point? He has, come, he has brought something new. And your old ways, your old understanding can't handle it. <laughs> I'm sure they were laughing about it too, you know. <laughs> they were. The point is Jesus is saying, he has brought something new and wondrous. And your old religion, your old ways can't handle it. I think there's a movie, You Can't Handle the Truth, right? You guys can't handle the new. You can't handle the truth. I want us to consider briefly then, <laughs> briefly, the superiority of Christ and the new covenant. See, he is the new. And they're 
rigid, external, outward thinking was the old that couldn't handle it, religion. Jeremiah 31, there the Lord prophesies. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Here's the new covenant. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Some years later then, Jesus is meeting with his disciples, celebrating the Passover meal And he says what in Matthew 26? Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the new covenant. He's the new arrangement, if you will, of how sinners relate to God. Some people have this mistaken notion that the Old Testament, well, in the Old Testament, the way that you were right with God was by following all the laws. And then the New Testament, well, now it's grace. You see that that Jesus, he's forgiven all of our sins, and now we're right by believing in him. Well, that's true. We are right with God by believing in Jesus, right? True faith in him. But were people made right with God by externally conforming to the law in the Old Testament? No. How were people made right with God in the Old Covenant era? By faith, the same way we are in the New Covenant era. It's just the object of that faith and the understanding of that has changed with the coming of the New, the New Covenant in Christ, right? But there's also all kinds of other wonderful new things that God has brought to us through Christ and in Christ. So people were made right with God by faith in the Old Testament too, just like they are in the New Testament. A different object and understanding of that faith, but by faith. But just like in the Old Covenant era when people could misunderstand it and make it all external conformity rather than an inward from the heart thing, Do you think people do that today where they make an outward conformity instead of an inward transformation of the heart? People do the same old thing today, don't they? They do. And so the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were tempted to turn away from their faith in Christ and revert back to their old ways of Judaism. Why? Because of the persecution of the church. And so the key theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ in the new covenant. Don't go back to the old. You've got something so much better in Christ now. Don't go back to the old, the author implores them. So in light of that, then, a call for them and also by extension for all believers believers of all time, including us here today, is to persevere in the faith. Why do you want to go back to the old? (laughs) when you have something so much more wondrous and new now in Christ. How is Christ and the new covenant superior to the old? 
He's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the Mosaic Covenant. He's superior to the earthly tabernacle. He's superior to the earthly priesthood. And he is our high priest now, through whom what? He has made it possible for us to come sheepishly before the throne of grace? No, to come boldly before the throne of grace. On Sunday morning, yes, and... Sunday night and Monday morning and so on. Any time through Christ, we're invited to come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. And his is a superior sacrifice, redemption through his blood, not like the blood of animals that couldn't truly cleanse and remove guilt. Only the blood of Christ can do that. His sacrifice forever removes the guilt and the stain of sin. So this brings us back to this question of law and grace. And we have here today a triad of threes. You've heard of the, the, the law of three or the rule of three. The people in threes that our minds tend to kind of gravitate towards things expressed in, in threes. Well, you're going to get threes, in th- by, threes threefold here today. All right? I want us to talk for just a little bit about the law. Three functions of the law, three responses or attitudes to the law, toward the law, and then three outcomes based on those attitudes or responses to the law, right? Three functions, three responses, three outcomes. Three functions of the law of God. Here are three of them right here. The law of God, that is, what God's, God's commandments. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. What do they do? The law of God, it reveals God's righteousness, that God is holy and righteous. It reveals man's unrighteousness. We're not. And it also reveals man's need for a savior. Can the law of God save you? No. It has no power to save. It reveals God's holiness. It reveals our lack of holiness. But what does it do, though? It points us to our need for a Savior because thou shalt or thou shalt not cannot save you or me. It only reveals the truth about who we are, and it reveals our need for a Savior. Did God ever intend the law to save you or me? No, it was always intended, the Apostle Paul speaks in Galatians, as the law as being what? Like a tutor or an instructor. Instructs us in the righteousness of God, our unrighteousness and our need. It points us then to a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So those are three functions of the law. Now, three responses to the law of God. Here is oftentimes how people may respond to the law of God. When God says, this is right, this is good, do this, don't do that. One response to that can be legalism. What is legalism? It is, again, it's this external conformity to the law, devoid or empty of mercy and grace. It's a purely outward conformity without any real inward change. And there's no power in legalism to change the heart, is there? It's a purely outward thing, legalism. 
looking good for others, but nothing changing within the heart, legalism, external conformity, devoid of mercy and grace. Well, then we get the opposite extreme, which is what? License. We got legalism over here, then you get a license, and that is an inward rebellion devoid of love. Well, okay, well, I'm just not, if I can't perfectly follow the law, then I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm not going to do what God says. I'm going to do what I want, but that is what? Empty of love. It's empty of love for God. License. Do whatever you want. Rebel against God's law. And there's no love of God in that. Well, we don't want to be... How many of you want to be a legalist? You want to, you want to, be, you want to be following the out, outwardly conforming? No? Well, we don't want that. Well, then how about license? Just do whatever you want. No, you don't want that either. What is the proper attitude? When I suggest it's liberty, legalism, license. And in the middle is liberty. Liberty, which is what? Freedom. It is an inward and an outward obedience that is motivated by gratitude and love for God. We follow the law of God from the heart, and it's seen then outwardly. And why are we doing it? To look good for others or for some benefit? No, out of gratitude and love for God. Inward and outward obedience motivated by gratitude and love for God. And then there are three outcomes from that. What's the outcome of legalism? Bondage to the law. Slavery to the law. Outward conformity doesn't set us free, does it? It doesn't set our hearts free. We just come under bondage to it. You can never be obedient enough, can you? What does license lead to? Bondage to sin. Oh, you want to do whatever you want? You're not going to follow the law. I'm going to do what I want. The heart wants what it wants, someone famously once said. Well, you follow the heart and do whatever you want. That sounds great for a while, but where does that ultimately lead? Bondage or slavery to sin. If you could survey people who just, have, who just do whatever they want, whenever they want, how many of those people you think, if they're really going to be honest, would tell you, and I'm really happy just doing this. My life is great just doing whatever I want, whenever I want. It may seem great for a while, but eventually what happens, you become a slave to sin. And there's no joy in that. There's no freedom in that. What does liberty lead to? That inward and outward obedience based on or because of, motivated by gratitude and love of God? That's liberty and it leads to freedom, peace, and joy in the Lord. I think that's what God would have for you and for me. Liberty. So what? What do we do with this? The new ways of Christ are superior to the old ways of religion. Outward conformity, outward ritual. 
The new way is what? It's a intimate relationship with God through faith in Christ, which comes with, in which there is a transformation from the inside out, motivated by gratitude and love, love of God. And that results in true freedom, peace, and joy. So what's your response to the law of God? Legalism? Look good on the outside? License? Forget with the law. I'm going to do what I want. Legalism leads to bondage. You're never good enough. You're never obedient enough. License leads to bondage to sin. It doesn't bring the freedom and joy you think it's going to, does it? Liberty? Obedience to God's law, motivated by gratitude and love. You know, one of the the things that uh, I I struggle with to a degree in preaching ministry, and, and I hope I'm getting better at this, okay, is that by nature, I tend to, when I read the scriptures and I play, I see that, okay, well, these are the things... I, these are the things we should be doing. These are the attitudes that we should be having and, that, and challenging us for that and realizing sometimes that may come across as very much, how you doing? Don't you, where are you falling short? Where are you falling short? Here, you got you to be like this. Gotta be like, and I realize that you may not be hearing grace as much as you need to, though, too. I hope you're hearing both because we need law and grace, don't we? We need them both. We need that healthy biblical balance there. And I hope you're hearing that. Because there are some of you that I know you want more of the law. You want the law. You've told me you want the law. And I don't mean, and I mean it in a good sense. They want to be challenged. They want to be shown very clearly from Scripture where they're falling short. But some of you, you don't want, you don't need that. You already know where you're falling short, right? You need to hear more of grace. I hope that we're all getting a healthy biblical balance of law and grace here in our church. I don't want us to be a bunch of legalists who are always trying to find out where we're falling short, okay? But on the other hand, I don't want a bunch of licentious people either, right? (laughs) We need that healthy biblical balance. Don't be a legalist. Don't be licentious. Be free. Be free. Inward and outward obedience motivated by gratitude and love for God. Therein lies freedom, peace, and joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time here today. We've been challenged here from your word, I hope, and I pray, Lord, that you would teach us that healthy balance between law and grace that healthy biblical balance, Lord, that, Lord, we know we fall short. We know we need your grace. But may that grace then never become, as we sung earlier today, something uh, uh, that, that we abuse and think that because we have grace, then it doesn't matter what we do. We don't need to be obedient to you. Teach us, Lord, that. Teach us to walk in liberty and true freedom, obeying you, Lord, motivated by gratitude and love. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org.